Good morning and welcome to St. Paul's Sunday morning Bible study. My name is Tanner Wade, pastor here at St. Paul's. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, those listening on our website at stpaulstopair.org and those listening in St. Louis on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. As is our usual practice, we will be looking at the lectionary readings for the upcoming week. That's the weekend of July 4th and 5th, uh, and we'll look at uh, the three readings, and then if we have time today, we'll, we'll di uh, dig into the psalm. But we're going to start in order, um, but before we begin with our Old Testament reading, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the blessing that it is to have not only your word, but your spirit in our lives to guide us uh, to your Son. We thank you for the gift of your son jesus christ in our lives and we pray that as we go about our weekend uh, celebrating uh, this coming week the july 4th holiday and as we go about our, our week interacting with others that we would keep christ and his sacrifice at the forefront uh, of all that we do that it would be a guide for the christ-like kindness that we are to live out our lives uh, in our interactions with others and the comfort uh, in our own lives to know your love and that you, that you have given to us in Christ. All these things we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, to begin with today, we're going to look at the Old Testament reading, and that is from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. And as we read it, you might recognize that this is a reading that perhaps is more associated with a different day in the church year um, than uh, certainly... Uh, the season after Pentecost, but uh, let us just begin with a little bit of background on the book of Zechariah. Uh, the first kind of note is that there's really two main parts of Zechariah. The first uh, chapters one through eight, uh, that first part is really kind of apocalyptic visions of what is to come. And then what we're going to focus on is really the start of the uh, next section of the second part of Zechariah chapters 9 through 14, which are the prophecies of the, the coming uh, Messiah. And one of the things that you may notice about this is that uh, this text, as we begin to read it, is that it's really a word of excitement, a word of excitement that looks beyond just the here and now. Um, and it is a word of excitement that looks into the future, the coming gift of God, the coming Messiah uh, for God's people. So we begin with Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, perhaps with that first verse there, Zechariah 9, verse 9, uh, you recognize what Sunday this reading is often read on, and that's Palm Sunday, of course, as uh, we have the prophecy that the, the coming king, the, the Messiah, the one that is coming for God's people, uh, he will come uh, lowly or meek, humbly, as it's translated in the ESV, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But that's not all that uh, is really contained in these first few verses. The, the first kind of thing to note is uh, the rejoice greatly. That word rejoice, gil, in, in the Hebrew, and uh, perhaps it's maybe most known uh, for many people today as being the, the word uh, gil is present in the Hava Nagila, 
which is the wedding song for many uh, Jewish weddings still today. But uh, Giel, rejoice greatly, or rejoice in abundance, in a large manner, O daughter of Zion. And that daughter of Zion, uh, and same thing with the right after that daughter of Jerusalem, that's the people of God, the people of God in a particular time and space, that this is uh, an instruction to God's people. And then we get the direct messianic prophecy. Behold, your king, your king is coming to you. And you notice the attributes of the king that Zechariah describes, that he is righteous, that he brings salvation. And in the Hebrew, that's really, uh, it, it's more descriptive of, of what he has come to do. He is having to do with the action of salvation, the salvation of God's people. And yet, just after that, as the uh, as is mentioned earlier, he will also come humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, or the foal of a donkey. And so you kind of have a little bit of a, a paradox that that this king, this this great rejoicing that we ought to have as God's people for the king who is coming. He comes humbly, mounted on a donkey. So you kind of have this, this direct um, paradox of what exactly are these people of God? Where exactly the, the people of the Old Testament are they expecting in this messianic king? What are they to expect? And at this point in Israel's history, uh, they had already been exiled into Babylon. They had already gone through the Babylonian captivity and they had been uh, given permission by Cyrus to come back and go back to uh, their homeland to rebuild it and to reestablish it. So you have this notion that now this is this this time is really coming quickly, that this could be any moment now. And this the best approximation historians have is this was written about five hundred and twenty BC or so. So there's still about five hundred years before the coming of Christ, but you have this anticipatory excitement that begins this passage. And we continue into verse ten. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. One of the really interesting parts of verse 10 uh, that we can sometimes gloss over is those three specific items that God says he will cut off, that he will cause to cease uh, the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow. And if you were to group those into any category and try and find, well, what, what is that all pointing to? These are instruments of war. The chariot was used by, uh, you know, a, a form of, I guess you could say, a tank division in modern day terms or something similar, um, but a, an attack force and an assault force, and the war horse was the cavalry that would uh, go into battle, and the battle bow would be the archers who would shoot their arrows, their bows and arrows, uh, into the enemy. And so you see right away that it is not by means of war that the king is going to come and win the battle. It is not by means of war, uh, earthly war, that the king comes and secures the victory. But rather, he shall speak peace to the nations. So when we hear rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, 
people to recognize, you're to rejoice because your king does not bring war, but brings peace to all nations. And one of the interesting parts about those means of war, if you look at who is described as uh, who those instruments of war belong to, you may see you may see that it is not um, the four nations whose weapons and whose uh, armies will be cut off, but it's the chariot of Ephraim uh, together with Manasseh. Ephraim was one of the, the two tribes that formed the house of Jacob and that the war horse is from Jerusalem and that the battle bow shall be cut off. So when the king comes to declare peace, it's not just your enemies who will lay down their weapons. No, it will be Israel itself who also lays down uh, their weapons. And we read that his rule shall be from sea to sea. And I guess it's probably appropriate uh, on July 4th weekend as these uh, verses are read that uh, we might say from sea to shining sea, but from sea to sea. And that's indicative that his reign will be through the whole world, that this isn't just a reign for uh, a, a, a small section of Mesopotamia, but no, this king, his rule shall be the whole world. It was interesting, as I was reading uh, these verses and reading some of the commentaries, uh, they said that uh, this sea to sea could be indicative of a, of a east to west type of directional relationship, whereas the next part, and from the river to the ends of the earth, could be seen as a north-south type of directional relationship. And so you have this idea that really, no matter where you go, his rule shall be, that he uh, declares peace, that he brings shalom, that he restores this king that is coming for the, the people of God. He restores how things were supposed to be. Uh, you can go all the way back even to creation and think of it as he's, he's bringing the restoration of that time when God looked out and said that it was good, all that had been made. And we continue into verse uh, 11. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. There's a couple interesting things to note in verse 11 here of Zechariah 9. Uh, the first of which is just a clarification. And when it says, as for you also, that's, that's a reference back to the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, the people of God. So that you people of God, also for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And it's interesting when we think of what that uh, phrase means, into, especially to Israel, what that might point them back to. Uh, you would find uh, Exodus 24, where God uh, instructs Moses um, to confirm the covenant with the people. And we read in Exodus verse 24, or chapter 24, I should say, verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. He took of the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you have a, a very strong historical tie that the people of Israel would recognize when, when God says through Zechariah, uh, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free 
from the waterless pit. And that may seem like kind of a strange phrase, a waterless pit, but that's just uh, kind of a Hebrew idiom um, for a dungeon or a prison. You think back to Joseph and when his brothers uh, threw, them, threw him in a pit for, to be sold into slavery, um, it was just that, a waterless pit that he could not uh, climb out of without the help of uh, his brothers or without um, first being sold into slavery. So again, you have that kind of historical connection, perhaps something from uh, Israel's past. And then finally, we get into the last uh, verse of the pericope for the upcoming Sunday. Uh, verse 12, Zechariah 9, verse 12, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Here you contrast the prisoners, the ones who are uh, in the, the waterless pit, the prisoners who uh, live without hope, perhaps even the prisoners that they were as those captive, cap, uh, kidnapped and, and uh, captive to the Babylonians. And you contrast that with the prisoners of hope, not as exiles, but of, of prisoners of anticipation the anticipation of something very specific happening. And of course, this is why um, it's such a big deal on Palm Sunday when he rides in, Jesus rides in on the, the full, uh, on a donkey, and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna. They, this is the anticipation uh, of the promised Messiah, the anointed one. And so in these passages, we see clearly that uh, God prophesying through his prophet that uh, that Messiah is coming, the King is coming, and he will have righteousness and bring salvation to God's people. So normally at this point, I'd ask if there would be any questions, but because we're still uh, meeting only virtually or not, uh, we're not meeting in person, uh, we will now continue to the next uh, reading that I'm going to go through that's assigned for this upcoming week and the weekend of July 4th and 5th, and that's for the Gospel reading. Uh, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. So we will uh, begin by just reading the, the, the six verses here, because it is only six verses, and then we'll get some context and go through it verse by verse. So Matthew 11, starting at verse 25 through verse 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So before we dive right into verse 25, a little bit of context. And any time we start a pericope with, and at that time, I always wonder, well, what time was that? And so if we, we back up a little bit into Matthew uh, chapter 11, we can kind of get a little context of uh, where, uh, what was going on in, in the gospel at the time that we read and that time. 
So to begin with, at the start of verse 11, we see uh, disciples of John the Baptist, actually, uh, coming to Jesus and asking, you know, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? And Jesus gives them the answer, you know, go and tell John, who's in prison at the time, that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and deaf hear, the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And it's interesting if you think about uh, why he doesn't answer it directly. Well, the first thing I'd say to that is he does. He, he hearkens right back to Isaiah 61, the prophecy of what uh, is going to happen when the, uh, the Messiah comes, when it is the, the year of the Lord's favor. Um, and that is that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Well, there's check one. Jesus just said that in Matthew 11, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison, prison to those who are bound, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you, uh, look at that answer. And while at first glance, maybe it doesn't seem direct, it is Jesus, uh, giving those disciples of John, um, a pretty direct answer that, yes, I am the one who is to come. And then just before our reading begins, uh, at Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 and Matthew 11, verse 20, uh, Jesus proclaims statements of woe. Uh, and you can probably, if you read through that, see why that may not be included with this particular pericope for to be read, um, as the gospel for this weekend. Uh, Jesus proclaims woe basically to everybody, but specifically the cities who uh, have seen his mighty works and yet have not repented. So then we get to our reading. And really the central question still remains um, from what John's disciples asked Jesus, you know, who is this Jesus? Who are you, Jesus? And so it was at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord, of heaven and earth, and there that Lord of heaven and earth is uh, a direct statement of just who is Jesus acknowledging his Father. Well, it's the Lord of creation. It is uh, the God of Israel, the God of the only God of the whole world, uh, the one who created heaven and earth. Uh, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Now, there's a couple key key references there that, that I wanted to highlight. The first is uh, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And when we read that, that reminded me of two specific passages, one in the Old Testament and one in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, that really stand out to me. And in the Old Testament, it's Isaiah chapter 29, uh, and we're going to start at verse 13. The direct quotation is from verse 14. But if we start at verse 13, we get a little bit of context as to what maybe Jesus uh, is saying when he says, thank you that the wise have not, uh, the, it has been hidden from the wise and from the understanding. So Isaiah 29, verse 13, Isaiah um, is declaring the, the, the statements of the Lord to the people of Israel uh, saying, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far, far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, 
with wonder upon wonder. And here comes the reference uh, to what is in the gospel reading. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And that could easily be translated, the understanding of their under of their understanding men shall be his, hidden. It's the same same idea, the same word. It's just a little bit of a translational uh, difference. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but have revealed them to uh, little children? Well, the first is it's not... Uh, <laughs> It's not the ones who are the rich or the popular, the ones the world would say um, and the world would consider wise and understanding. Uh, rather, it's the little children. And in this day, little children were not thought of as a very valued member of society. They didn't contribute much to the family. They didn't contribute much to society. And so when he says revealed to little children, he thanks God that the gospel that he's proclaiming is not for those who think they're smarter than everybody else. It's not for those who are uh, the most powerful by the worldly sense of the word, but rather it's the ones who bring nothing to the table. They are the ones who understand uh, the good news of, of Jesus and the proclamation of who Jesus is. And uh, St. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the dis discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And so what you really have here um, is that Jesus thanking God that, again, it is not those, it's not the smartest guy in the room who understands what's going on, but it's for all people. It's, in fact, especially for those who, who can't bring anything to the table uh, the weak and the broken, the, the prisoner, the captive, the sojourner, the, the orphan, the one who is unimpressive in the world's eyes, and yet it is he uh, who is proclaimed this good news of Christ, the saving word of Christ. And so then we continue uh, into verse uh, 26 here. And verse 26 is, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Uh, and, and it's kind of just an affirmation of what Jesus has just previously said. Uh, but it, it really is more in, in the Greek, a statement of, you know, yes, this is pleasing. Uh, this is pleasing before God himself. And so then we continue into verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the father uh, except, or no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here Jesus is pointing out, especially to those who would be uh, experts in the law, the, the lawyers, the Pharisees, and the scribes, it's not 
uh, the understanding of God the Father is not through the Torah, is not through the law, but is through the Son. That Jesus is the Christ and the Anointed One, and we, we get, get the understanding we have of God through the grace and mercy of God. We don't do it on our own. We don't do it through uh, intense academic study. And once we achieve a certain level that we're able to uh, know God, but rather it is God's grace and mercy that reveals himself to us in Christ. And you'll see that this then uh, translates into what he says in verse 28. And of these six verses, verse 28 is probably uh, the most well-known verse in this section. It's what I sometimes refer to as a refrigerator verse, meaning this is a verse we'll cut sometimes out of the context of where it occurs in the gospel reading and just uh, take the verse by itself and post it onto a magnet to put on our refrigerator or maybe even a bumper sticker. But uh, verse 28 is, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's a shift here that, you know, Christ invites all who are laboring, those who are in a state of heavy burden, to come to him and that their rest will be found uh, in Jesus. If you were to ask a, a Jew at this time, where is your rest? Where is your, your Sabbath? Where do you find it? Uh, a Jew would have said, well, in the Torah, in God's law, that's where you go for rest. And Jesus speaks out against that. Jesus pretty directly says here, no, no, it, that rest, that Sabbath rest, that, that is found in me. And he continues into verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And it was interesting. I, I hadn't quite considered this before, but in looking at some commentaries, they pointed out that specifically that rest for your souls is, is more of an idiomatic phrase for just meaning yourselves. You will find rest for your yourselves. Um, now, it, it can mean, you know, for our, our, our spiritual souls, but also um, more all-encompassing than just that. It's, it's for you as a person, you as a, as a created being, you as a creature, you will find rest in Christ. And in verse 30, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, Christ's yoke, and that's why he instructs uh, those listening to take his yoke upon them and to learn from him. Because Christ's yoke is easy. It's not uh, the Torah, you know, do this or don't do that. Rather, it's uh, God's kingdom, his res revelation of himself in the person of Christ. That is the, the knowledge and the understanding that gives your souls rest. And, and it's interesting as we consider uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine here, uh, it's a, actually a quote, a quote from Jeremiah 6, 16, where, G, or where God says to his people, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That we are to walk in uh, the, the example and in the light of Christ. That Christ's yoke uh, is not the, the heavy, heavy yoke of the law, but it's a yoke of grace and of mercy that's given to God's people. It's not earned by God's people, but it's given through the grace and mercy of God himself and revealed 
by the Son. And so you have here in this gospel reading really a, a, a strong proclamation of not only who Jesus is, but where we take comfort as Christians and where the world can take comfort, that it's not in our own ability to understand and our own knowledge, our own, um, you know, meeting of certain requirements, but rather it's through the revelation of Christ. It's what God reveals to us. It's God's action in our lives that gives us rest. And that rest is only found uh, in, in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so uh, if you think about that uh, first Old Testament reading, as we kind of try to uh, ascertain perhaps a, a theme for this weekend's upcoming readings. I would say that the main thing is there's two, there's kind of a twofold theme. The first is quite frankly, who is this Messiah? Who is this anointed one? What does it mean that he's going to come as we read in Zechariah? And then in our gospel, what does it mean that now he's here? Um, but then the, the second theme, uh, which is something that we're going to pick up most highly in the epistle lesson coming up next um, from Romans chapter 7, the second part of that theme is that it is not uh, able to be done by ourselves, that we in the flesh cannot uh, gain this understanding. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot labor, do the right thing enough in order to gain it, but rather it is truly only the grace of God that... Um, and through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we are able to know who God is and what he has done for us. So that is the Old Testament and the gospel readings for this upcoming weekend of July 4th and 5th. And now we're going to move on uh, to the epistle reading. The epistle reading is from Romans chapter 7. And it's one of my favorite parts of the book of Romans. And that's easy for a lot of people to say because Romans has so many uh, great sections in it. But particularly in Romans 7, starting at verse 14, we read Paul say, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now I do what I do not want. Now if I do, I'm sorry, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I, now if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but that's but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
And here we see Paul with a pretty uh, direct um, statement of contrast between two things. So let, let's begin, though, with verse 14. We read that Paul said, Paul say, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Uh, what Paul is saying there is that, the, first of all, I should say, when he says that the law is spiritual, that means it is of the spirit. It is spirit-filled. It's the holy entity of God intended for God, godly life. Uh, he's not saying that the law is uh, spiritual in a lowercase sense of the word, but truly that the God that the law is spiritual in the godly divine sense of spiritual and uh, here uh, Paul kind of presumes an agreement with his hearers that that they will acknowledge that the law is of God um, but they will so too acknowledge knowledge that they are of the flesh sold under sin. And then we read, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And here we get that first statement where Paul acknowledges that <laughs> what, what he wants to do, um, you know, what he wants to desire, whom he wants to follow, that's not what he's doing. And yet, at, even as a Christian, he does the very thing uh, that he hates. And so he says in verse 16 that now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. And that that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And the real contrast that comes about uh, in these verses is that uh, the things that are of the flesh could be seen as the things that are part of the fallen nature uh, of of the world uh, and the things that are of the spirit are of divine origin are of the holy will of god uh, paul knows that he cannot uh, as a sinful human being achieve a, a, some sort of perfection in his actions he knows that he is still at the same time a a sinner, no matter uh, no matter what, that he is both a saint and sinner. That God's uh, will in his life, he is not always followed, and he continues to not always follow. Uh, he continues in saying, "For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh," and that's where again I highlight that that in my flesh means the things of the fallen nature of this world, the sinful nature of this world. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability uh, to carry it out. And uh, it's interesting. I, I read a translation of this passage that I wanted to share because I loved how uh, the tr this translator put it. And it was a former college professor of mine from Concordia, Irvine, Mike Middendorf. He translates that verse 18 like this. For I understand that good is not dwelling in me. This is in my flesh, indeed, to will, and in brackets, what is excellent, lies close at hand for me. But the accomplishing, the accomplishing of what is excellent, no. And to me, I thought that's just an awesome summary of what Paul is trying to get at uh, in, in verse 18 here, that his desire is in accordance with the will of God, that he is saying, you know, God's will be done in his life 
to do the excellent things of God, those good works of God that he, that has been uh, set before him. And yet he knows that the ability to accomplish that and accomplish it uh, completely to a perfect sense, that that is not uh, in him, that he does not have the ability to carry it out. Uh, the accomplishing of what is excellent, that that's not close at hand for Paul um, because Paul is of the flesh, that as we are truly still uh, sinners who are afflicted by the sinful reality of not only this world, but of our original sin, that we do not have the ability to accomplish um, a perfect excellence of God's will, that we do fall short. And so we continue into verse 19, uh, and Paul you know, further illustrates this uh, by perhaps one of the most easily uh, for easily misremembered passages because of all the repetition that occurs in it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. If there was ever a tongue twister of a Bible verse, that can sometimes <laughs> be... Uh, be it. But again, it's for I do not do the good that I want, that Paul's desire is in accordance with the will of God, and yet that's not what he keeps on doing. And in contrast to that, it's the evil that he specifically does not want to do that he keeps on doing. And if we were honest with ourselves, how often that statement could be a very accurate representation of our own uh, daily lives. Uh, you know, we don't have to look too far back to the last time we did something we did not want to do that we knew was wrong, and yet we did it. And yet we also don't have to look very far back in our own lives to think of a time that we did not do the good thing that we wanted to do, the thing that we knew was right, and we so too did not uh, do that. And we continue into verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of the of God in my inner being. We kind of have a reference right there to Psalm Psalm one that blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God, on the Torah of God, day and night, who delights in that law of God. And yet, uh, Paul says in verse twenty three, though his inner being Delights in the law of God. In verse 23, he says, But I see in my members there's another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And here, if you go back to that original contrast I kind of brought out, he, in one sense, is saying uh, his Christian mind is one redeemed by Christ. That is uh, what delights that in the law of God. That's his inner being that delights in that. And yet the things of the flesh, the other members of his body, they lie captive to the law of sin that dwells. And Paul's response to the, these uh, 10 verses that I have just read, it, it comes in verse 24 and truly is a, a great confession, a great reminder of the humble confession we have to have as Christians, which is, uh, we read in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. And without Christ, of course, there is no answer to that question. Without Jesus, that is where we are left as human beings. That is the sad reality, the, the painful reality 
of our existence. There is that there is no answer. Yet in Christ, listen to what Paul says in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here Paul's statement of confession in that wretched man that I am who will deliver me from the body of death and his answer that it that right away thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord is a beautiful reminder of the uh, absolute guilt that we have as human beings because of our sinful nature but also the absolute joy that we have in Christ that we can very quickly on the one hand say wretched men wretched people wretched human beings that we are and when we look at ourselves that I am, we can often wonder who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this sinful actions that I see permeate my life? Who will, who will deliver me from the reality that what I want to do is not what I'm actually doing? And then the things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Who will deliver us from this body of death? And at the same time, just as quickly as Paul does, we as Christians can respond with rejoicing that it is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That we have an answer to that question. That that, that answer is Christ in him crucified. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the epistle lesson was Romans 5, 1 through 11, you know, which has the incredible statement that you know while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here is kind of a little bit of a repetition of that same sentiment that wretched, wretched people that we are, or as Paul himself says, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver us? Well, thanks be to God, it is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and through him and him alone that we are delivered from the body of death. And Paul concludes uh, this epistle reading saying, so then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He acknowledges that he himself is still sinful, but the hope that he has is the, the true hope um, that all Christians have in Christ, that we are delivered from our, our sinful uh, actions, our sinful thoughts, words, and deeds through Jesus Christ our Lord. So really, when you look at these three readings, we have truly a strong sense of the deliverance that we have. We think back to Zechariah, and we think to a people who are very much oppressed, burdened. They've been captive for 70 plus years, um, and now they're able to return to their homeland, and they're probably wondering, what are we going to do next? And you hear Zechariah's announcement of hope that that they are not prisoners of war, not exiles, but they are prisoners of hope, that they have the anticipation of something happening and that something will be the anointed king of Israel who will be righteous and having salvation. And then we go to the gospel reading where we see Jesus say that he, uh, he himself will give us rest, that it is he who comes, he who comes to uh, free those who are captive, to restore the sight to the blind, to take those who mean the littlest to society and remind them how much they mean to God, and specifically in our pericope for the upcoming Sunday, 11 uh, through 
25 through 30 uh, that he is the one that will give us rest and that his yoke is easy, that although we have great burden, he takes that burden off our shoulders and invites us to uh, rest in his burden, rest in the yoke that he provides, a yoke that is not the heavy burden of the law, but is the, the free gift of the gospel, the free gift of grace that we receive in him. And then so too, Paul, highlighting the same thing, points out how, how frustrated, how desperate he can feel when he considers that he doesn't want to do the, the good uh, that he knows he ought to do. Uh, but rather he does just the opposite. He does evil when he knows he should be doing good. And then when it comes to the things that he doesn't want to do, um, those things of evil that he, he is trying desperately to get away from, he knows that those are still the things that he keeps doing. And so Paul's response is that he bears that heavy yoke uh, that Jesus talked about when he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then, of course, he so too brings out that, that easy yoke that Jesus uh, gives to us freely, that thanks be to God, it is through Jesus Christ our Lord that we are delivered from that body of death. And so those three lessons uh, really highlight not only who we are as God's people, but what we receive in the Messiah. And now listen to the psalm and see perhaps why if you... Uh, think of that theme, why this psalm is chosen uh, for this upcoming Sunday. Uh, it is Psalm 145 in its entirety, and we read, starting in verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. There in those first two verses of the psalm, it is a statement of intent, that the, the author of the psalm wants to make sure that he, he makes it clear that his intent is to extol and to bless the name of God, his king, that every day he will bless and praise God's name forever and ever. And why does he do this? Well, we find that in verse 3, that great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised is he, and his greatness is unsearchable, that one generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. So he answers his own statement of desire. Why is he doing this? Because of God's mighty acts. Those historical accounts of the reality of what God does for his people, starting from Noah to Abraham to even starting at Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, and of course to the whole world in Christ, that one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts that on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Here we're reminded that uh, very truly we are a historical people, that as the children of God, we rejoice in the historical works of God throughout all of history, from the creation of, of our own beings made in the image of God, 
to, through the covenants and the promises of God with his people, uh, fulfilled and proclaimed to us in Christ and him crucified, that truly we are to speak of his mighty deeds. We are to declare his greatness, to pour, I love that, to pour forth. That's how it should, it should be so abundant. It's pouring forth out of us the fame of your abundant goodness. We shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's a really interesting word there, steadfast love. In the Hebrew, it's, it's kesed. And for those who are St. Paul's members, who may have been also with us at our Foundations Bible study this uh, weekend uh, for on Zoom, you'll know that we talked quite a bit about what it means um, that uh, God has kesed, because kesed is a word that has a lot of baggage, that when steadfast love is brought out, um, it's brought out to remind the people of God all that he has done. It, it's one of those words that carries an immense historical uh, weight that it not only has meaning, but it truly has meaningfulness for uh, the people of Israel, that they are to remember that uh, the Lord brought them out of slavery, that he delivered them from their enemies, that he gave them the promised land, that he uh, sent, uh, for us as Christians, we can remember that he sent the promised Messiah and his son Jesus Christ to die for us, and it is for his sake that he forgives us all our sins. That the steadfast love of God is truly a gracious and merciful action that takes those who have no right to claim any sort of heritage with God, any sort of blessing with God, and yet God's steadfast love declares us his very children. And in verse 9, we read that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. And they shall speak of your glory, of the glory of your kingdom, and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works, and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling, and raises up all who are bowed down. And especially in the context of these three verses where you have people burdened with a heavy burden of labor, a heavy yoke, the guilt of, of their sin in the face of God's law, awaiting in the Old Testament reading at least the promised Messiah. This psalm is a great capstone to the three pericopes chosen for this weekend in that it is truly a reminder that in the midst of that we are given the greatest gift of all, not only a relationship with God, but the revelation of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so uh, I would encourage you as you go about your week, maybe uh, bookmark or highlight Psalm 145 in your Bibles as a, a great reminder each day this week to truly uh, praise the name of God each and every morning, because he is truly uh, gracious and merciful and abounding in that steadfast love that love that not only declares you to be uh, his own people, but that love that forgives us all of our sins at a great cost of his son's very life. And so it's a great capstone to the, the three other pericopes that we have for this weekend. And uh, we, are, we are running out of time here, but uh, I just want to say a very uh, 
Happy 4th of July weekend. It will be coming up, I guess, uh, but the, that's the weekend that these readings are for, the following weekend. And uh, let us end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gifts that you have given us. We thank you that uh, we can praise your name and the greatness of the actions that you have done on our behalf, that while we have no right, uh, no claim of authority to try and demand any sort of action, you have absolutely, in your grace and mercy, given us the greatest gift of all in your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that we would remember that uh, your, your gifts of mercy and grace abound in our life, that your love is always there beside us, and that all we do, we would praise and magnify your holy name. And it is in the holy name of God the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.